Philip Leonardos is the founder of Shelf Now, a company that makes artisanal and non-mainstream food brands more accessible to independent buyers. This episode, Philip explains to us how smaller brands make up the majority of Europe's food production and what that means for us. The idea of Shelf Now is to actually change the norm behind something that's good, looks good, tastes good, is actually good in its quality, should also be associated with a high price. Mm. That's what tends to happen naturally, unfortunately, because uh, of the way distribution works, because of the way distribution, you know, disfavors, if you like, the higher quality goods. And to be more specific, you know, what we found out was that when you're dealing with a producer who may be called artisanal or speciality, which really means non-mainstream, which really means a brand that actually puts a lot of quality that often is craftsmanship to a certain extent yeah. into their production rather than, you know, manufacture at scale, rather than just belong to one of the huge umbrella companies that we all know yeah. uh, who own, you know, half the supermarket brands and so on. Mm-hmm. What tends to happen is you naturally have a more expensive range of products. Mm-hmm. It's in the very making of it. Yeah. It costs more, right? However, that doesn't mean that the distributor who usually handles the sales of it mm-hmm. should be charging as much as they are. Yeah. And when we really, you know, looked into this in the detail of it all, we realized that the reason the distribution cost so much was simply because it was exchanging a lot of hands or it was exchanging inefficient hands, uh, brick and mortar middlemen, resellers that were often marking up significantly. Mm -hmm. So that norm on the high street that I'm going to go into a deli or I'm going to go into a grocer and I'm going to have the option to buy a mainstream brand for affordable price, dirt cheap even, like you said, Mm. or... I'm going to spend a little more and treat myself to something better. Is something we're trying to change. We're trying to make good accessible, mm. right? And so to your second question, we do not call ourselves a niche, high quality or high end, sorry, marketplace. Mm. We call ourselves a marketplace that's dedicated to the non-mainstream brands, to the artisanal, right. to the small, medium size, to the players that care about the quality that goes into their food. Yeah. And we hope to be empowering these players by reducing the unnecessary cost of distribution so their products can reach the shelves at a decent price. So me and you can then buy them at a decent price. Right. Okay. So it's kind of like you're, you know, you're connecting A with B, but you know, by connecting the the buyer with the with the supplier, you're also kind of like, let's make that process easier for you. Cause I noticed you guys kind of handle all the invoicing side of things and all the kind of financing side of things so how does that kind of incorporate into the the transaction for you know say a shop owner and a a product maker i mean that's part of it right it's it's a big part of uh what we do the idea of consolidating and handling automating if you like picking up the admin the slack that comes with transacting Mm. and you're right that does lead to us becoming a channel that is more affordable for the sellers and the buyers to trade through the other thing that's also quite key to what we do is the fact that we don't act as a reseller we don't take ownership neither the title of the goods that we work with so the the hundreds and the thousands of brands and producers that work with us they don't actually sell to us and that means that we facilitate a trade that is most direct between the seller and the brand while supporting it while bringing it all together while mediating it so suddenly when there's no need for reselling to happen that also means that there's no need for certain risks to exist and certain capital intensive complications to arise ergo allowing us to be a lot more affordable so really it all starts there Um, and we've seen things like that in the past don't get me wrong we've seen concepts around marketplaces that facilitate you know 
the direct buying and selling. Yeah. Let's be honest, Amazon may probably be the first one to have done this. Yeah. The difference is that in our industry, we are really focused on, first of all, the B2B, so business-to-business -business trade between strictly food producers and food buyers, whether in retail or food service. Mm -hmm. Then we change the norm of you require a reseller in the middle to actually facilitate the buy and sell. And what we're saying is we don't require a reselling activity. We just require a marketplace that will bring the two counterparts together. Second thing we're saying, Sam, is basically that Another thing that's really important these days for the sellers and the buyers is to get to know who they're trading with. They want to know what shops are you know, stocking my products and vice versa. The buyers want to know what's the story behind this brand. Mm. Again, when you look at the incumbent, you don't get any of that transparency. Yeah. If anything, that transparency is protected by the middleman. We're opening this up and we're saying we want the sellers and the buyers to have a direct relationship because that's how they can do better business and that's how they could build a meaningful connection. I mean, isn't it great when you can go into a deli in the countryside and, you know, speak to the owner who can tell you that, look, I'm buying this sort of chocolate or this sort of uh, kombucha or soda, and it comes from somewhere maybe locally. And I know the farmer or I know the brand and I can tell you a thing or two. And that's something that isn't just a trend. It's just a requirement these days. Mm. It touches on sustainability, it touches on getting to know the source. At the same time, that some you know that very same thing comes with the risks. Obviously, if every single buyer and and seller were to go out there and trade with each other directly, which mm -hmm. sounds ideal, that would come also with the complications of inefficiency, uh, needing a lot of staff, just time really. Right. So we're yeah. sort of taking some the best of the two worlds: the middleman, the incumbent middleman, mm -hmm. and what they do, and then the direct way of buyer and seller coming together. And we incorporate those things into shop now. And yes, to your point, and that's probably the third key point, we do bring a lot of automation and consolidation to the platform to make things easier. And at the end of the day, that's what makes us also a tech company. Yeah. So this is probably, you know, a thing that you've, you know, maybe forgotten about or you you might not have to mind. But what was the first product that you stopped? And how did you find this this seller and you know or this product maker? Because that is kind of interesting. Because I want to look down as there's you know hundreds of products, if not probably you know pushing up to thousands. And I'm always wondering what what was the first thing that you know was on the marketplace. So we're currently representing more than 15 countries in Europe, mm -hmm. and our largest market for suppliers, so for the brands, is the UK. And it started with the UK being the the very first market through which most of our brands were coming from. Mm. Naturally, we wanted to improve the product accessibility that we have in the UK market. So we obviously looked locally and domestically first. So, uh, you know, jotting my memory a little bit, I believe there's a few brands that come to mind that I had met myself, actually, in the early days, before we had even developed, you know, the marketplace, before the platform mm. was live, before any functionality existed. And I'll give you a few examples. I remember one small producer who was focusing on uh, energy, uh, energy snacks mm. in the form of um, the energy balls that you'll find in coffee shops and yeah. retail uh, that are a sort of quick bite that gets you going through the day. Mm -hmm. And she had developed this amazing line at first at her own home, mm. which was impressive. And then she took it out and, and scaled it and used manufacturing uh, that was professional and then brought it on to our um, well, to our network so we could enlist it, if you like. Mm. Um, that was one amazing brand that we dealt with and we've seen them grow successfully. It's been really beautiful because a lot of the brands we work with, Sam, aren't just 
medium-sized companies with multi-million revenues. Certainly some are, but many others are only at the beginning of their journey. Mm. And these are the brands that need the most help mm -hmm. when it comes to facilitating, guiding them as to how to best go to market. Right. And also these are the same brands that often hit a brick wall when it comes to working with wholesalers because wholesalers won't compromise yeah. their pricing to mm -hmm. accommodate a smaller buyer, uh, yeah. a smaller brand, excuse mm -hmm. me. So that's an example. The other one I, that comes to mind is uh, an Indian spice sauce, which was, uh, again, an artisanal buyer um, mm -hmm. brand, excuse me, doing some really cool, innovative mixing and, and cooking with the sole purpose of actually modernizing the way we perceive here in the UK, Indian sauces, really yeah. moving away from uh, the concept that they're all extremely spicy and, you know, almost too difficult maybe to digest for, yeah. for, you know, most purposes other than when you're having Indian meals, mm -hmm. uh, Indian cuisine meals. Uh, and, and, and he really managed to actually incorporate his sauces into everyday dining, which is amazing. Yeah. The branding was amazing. The recipes are amazing. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a third example would be a kombucha company. At the time, kombucha was something that was sort of new. Now it's a lot more established. Mm -hmm. And again, we stumbled across this really interesting founder who had this very small team at the time, and she was brewing their kombucha here in London. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them were local yeah. to the southeast. Uh, we visited them. We saw their facilities. We met them at their trade fairs. Yeah. And yeah, and then conversations started. I mean, I could give you many more examples, but it was a <laughs> yeah. quite diverse beginning. And yeah. we didn't necessarily start with an agenda that mm. said we want to go for snacks or we want to go for sauces. It was a bit more open at the time. Yeah. Do you, do you tend to have, I don't know what your knowledge is on this, but other distrib distributors or other kind of food marketplaces that are only just for snacks or only just for drinks? Because that's one thing I noticed as well. You guys had snacks, drinks, sauces, uh, in some places, you know, like, you know, alcoholic drinks. I know some places don't do alcoholic drinks and soft drinks. So it's like you guys have a lot of everything, but it's like, you know, it's very specific things. It's not just like, oh, here's a lemonade or, you know, here's a glass of water type thing. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't have a glass of water, uh, but we could trade in water. Mm. You're right. Uh, bear in mind that everything we uh, we, you know, uh, marketplace represent mm. is for trade, right? Mm. So it's always coming down to, you know, procuring it in a trade format. So I guess cases is an easy way to think yep. about it. You can't order necessarily one unit of something. It has to come in, you know, at least one case. Um, of course, a lot of the, a lot of, uh, the volumes that we sell facilitate smaller buyers as well, who don't necessarily have the storage space, mm. especially in cities like London or Manchester or Birmingham. You know, a lot of the uh, coffee shops, uh, the retail, the grocers, the um, health shops, they don't have the ability to store in advance, yeah. uh, you know, for the months to come. And therefore, it's an in and out approach. So one of the things that we facilitate and one of the things that differentiates us also massively to wholesalers is the fact that we can actually trade in anything from one case to, you know, multiple pallets, depending mm -hmm. on the buyer's needs. Mm -hmm. Coming back to your question, though. Are there any other more specific marketplaces for trade? I don't believe there are mm. in the UK, at least. And even though we have more than 15 categories ourselves mm. uh, that we work with, um, we still consider us as a player that is very focused, very focused in F&B to begin with, yeah. and very focused within the building of the verticals that we have. Because, you know, you're right to think there's so many categories for example, lemonade, that's that's a soft beverage, really. Um, you know, water, again, within soft beverages. But then you have snacks, then you have condiments, then you have 
alcohol than you have fresh. So we have been very methodical in the way we've been approaching the mm -hmm. building of those verticals. I wouldn't say that we go after all of it. Mm -hmm. We don't because we like to retain a focus and that focus grows with our buyers and what the buyers need. Mm -hmm. But it is our goal to become uh, you know, a player that can provide it all. So whether you're a retail customer or whether you're a food service customer, such yeah. as a restaurant, you should be able to find almost anything you need on our marketplace, as long as it's not a mainstream brand, a huge mass production player. Yeah. So I, excuse me if this is a, a terrible term, but like an artisan version of Costco. Yeah. So it's not. Yeah, sure. It's different, <laughs> but it's not terrible. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, so Costco would be seen uh, without needing to pick on them at all uh, as a middleman. You're right, yeah. as a wholesaler middleman. The difference to them is, yeah, not only would we be focusing on the more artisanal, small, medium-sized brands, mm. which, by the way, an interesting statistic shows that that's 90% of Europe's food scene. 90% mm. of Europe's and the UK's food manufacturing market yeah. comprises of the small, medium-sized players. Really? Um yeah. Wow. Really? I, yeah. I wouldn't even yeah. thought of that because it's like you go no, to the supermarket no. and you, you just see all the same stuff. Exactly. All the time. Yeah. Exactly. People think that, you know, the likes of Coca Cola, Unilever, and so on, uh, all these, you know, great consumer brands mm. that own thousands of brands uh, within them uh, are the majority of what's out there. But no. the reality is that it's not. Mm. Of course, in the volume and the revenues that they generate, there's a, you know, there's a very different split. Mm. Uh, in fact, it's around half half. Half comes from the independent smaller brands, half comes from the mainstream ones. So it is impressive yeah. what those, you know, larger uh, conglomerates can do uh, or how prominent they've been. But in terms of numbers, in terms of who's out there, yeah, yeah the, the backbone of the economy in most countries does rely on small, medium-sized brands, which often don't even make it outside their periphery or their local, yeah. you know, area, let's mm -hmm. call it city, you know, town and so on. So that's something we want to change. So coming back to your question about Costco, one key thing again that would differentiate us is that first we don't we're not brick and mortar. Second, we don't own the products. Yeah. Again, those are huge differentiator. Yeah. Uh, differentiating uh, factors. But then also, yeah, we have that focus. That's a lot more for you know quality. But in terms of do we allow trade buyers yeah. to come and interact with sellers? Absolutely. In that sense, yes, we very much play on the disruption of wholesale by being, if you like, wholesale 2.0. Yeah. I heard you say earlier that, you know, there's no kind of minimum spend on what you have to kind of order. So does, does that kind of viewpoint, you know, what, what is that viewpoint like? Why did you come to this point where you're like, yeah, you could buy one case or, you know, one pallet? Because those two quantities are very, very different. Yeah. So, again, a uh, really good question. The incumbent wholesaler, middleman, uh, reseller, uh, mm. they all really mean the same thing, at least in the UK. It's a lot harder for most buyers to work with those middlemen mm. because in their very nature as business models, these middlemen, these wholesalers, distributors, they take inventory risk. Yeah. They put a lot of money up front to own the product. Yeah. And therefore, they can be as flexible. It's not that they don't want to or mm. they're not accommodating. I'm sure they're all lovely, lovely people to yeah. work with. But they can't often sell tiny quantities mm -hmm. because that would mean, you know, a lot of things for, for the way they operate yeah. and vice versa. Some of them will, you know, focus on smaller ones and they won't be able to necessarily turn around the bigger quantities because perhaps they can't afford to buy those quantities. So the whole idea here is that we have a very diverse 
audience when it comes to independent buyers. We haven't really spoken about the buyers that we go after, yeah. but I should clarify probably at this point that the buyers we go after are in the UK at least called the independent buyers. Right. Independent buyers being buyers that can buy as and when they like. Mm-hmm. They don't follow necessarily a corporate agenda when it comes to what they'll stock, what products are going to be placed. For example, a chain Mm -hmm. that has 300, you know, units around Mm -hmm. the country can decide if they want to that half of those units will carry the brand that they've just closed the deal with. Uh, The idea of the independent is whether they're obviously a standalone or even a smaller chain, they don't need to confront any of that Mm -hmm. corporate, if you like, procurement. And of course, naturally, a lot of those independents are smaller businesses. Yeah. Again, very interestingly, 90% of the UK's retail market yeah. comprises of independent retailers. Right. So the smaller shops, yeah. the grocers, the delis, the farm shops, the garden centers, the cafes. And it's quite incredible to think about that number as well. The rest, the 10% is, you know, the chains that we all know that are around us. So when you think of those, some, you can only understand the range is immense. You mm. can have a tiny hole in the wall grocer somewhere in the uk yeah. and then you can have a restaurant that has maybe five six seven sites mm-hmm. which can procure in the multiple several thousands per month yeah. versus a smaller store that maybe you know spends two three thousand pounds yeah. and obviously the the very space that those you know different businesses have as well the storage the operations the people the stuff is very different so for us to accommodate those independents and empower them with a better procurement a mm-hmm. better value for their procurement if you like we needed to ensure that there's flexibility in the sense that the larger player can stock more, can buy more, and the smaller player should be able to access it, you know, at a, at a lower minimum order quantity or, or you know, number of cases, however you want to look at it. So we had to break out of that, you know, square way, if you like, of working to accommodate everyone, really. Yeah. And something that kind of just popped into my mind now while you were speaking, because I was like, you know, we're dealing with food here. Over the course of the pandemic, aside from toilet roll, people's second biggest worry was food. (laughs) Now, did you you see like a a, a rise in demand as, you know, people couldn't get pasta from the supermarket and they couldn't get this and that from the supermarket, but you guys definitely had access to people that had those products? Yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, I mean, we did see, first of all, a rise in demand. You're absolutely right, especially around certain types of categories you know, essentials, let's call them, uh, things that people wanted to stock at home, you know, often products that would have a longer shelf life would be easy to stock on, especially when, the you know, there was a period of some panic buying, which yeah. uh, was obviously a bit of a, you know, scary, scary thing to see. And of course, that spiked the prices, right, naturally. Now, during that time, what we realized is that, you know, there was a lot of disruption in the supply chain, you know, a lot of it was coming also from the fact that transportation was harder, you know, people were at home a lot more. So that also spiked prices as well. It wasn't just the demand, it was the whole ecosystem. So, you know, for us and for the brands that we work with, what we saw was a beautiful thing, which was that a lot of the brands wanted to empower their local trade buyers by selling to them at, you know, better prices, by making sure they don't you know, waste anything yeah. because obviously suddenly a lot of their orders took a hit. So we worked with some of our brands in a special COVID campaign to actually mm-hmm. empower uh, our brands to sell as affordably as they could to anyone really who was looking to buy. Usually what people tend to do at moments like this is they panic buy and they go to, you know, the largest possible shops and they'll stock up. Yeah. But really what I think, you know, people should be doing more. And in fact, 
quite a few people did do, did do that as well, mm. is to turn to their local you know shop down the road near them and see can this shop support me? Can this you know deli or baker or butcher you know provide what I need? And that whole norm of actually buy independent, buy local is something that we're seeing a lot more now, especially post-pandemic. In fact, if you look at statistics from various associations that we work with and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we follow and, and, and we're even partners with, they told us that the independence grew by up to 30% actually in business yeah. during the pandemic because people started realizing, maybe not so much at the start, but throughout the year that I don't need a large supermarket anymore. I can find all I need locally to me. and if anything, it may even be better. It may even be supporting, uh, you know, a cause such as sustainability. Buy local, buy from somewhere close by, yeah, and so on and so forth. I, I must admit, myself, I did the same thing. I was like, oh, there's certain things that I love to eat out, like as in out the house yeah. type thing, right? <laughs> not even like supermarket. I was just like, damn, I'm not going to be able to get these certain cuts of steak from the supermarket. I won't be able to get, you know pies and all these type of stuff so I went online and mm-hmm. went to independent companies and you know over the course of the pandemic it was great these things you know were coming to my house cooking them at home whatever but yeah then I guess some of the things that kind of I noticed as well as a, as a customer as a, on the customer side is a lot of these companies probably tried to scale and then when they scaled the quality went down which was like really sad to see as a customer that's like these people are getting a lot of business but they can't actually kind of sustain it Mm, I see. Were those were those um, businesses sort of B two C models delivering directly to yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, that is that okay. exact model. And so that, I feel like the one yeah. thing is with with your company and you know where I was, it's like you guys are kind of like a you you set a standard of quality that has to I guess be maintained. I guess. I mean, first of all, again, it's very important to make sure we don't confuse at all the two right mm. we don't deal with consumers so yeah. myself and you were consumers yeah. uh, at home so we don't provide to any consumers so yeah. there's a lot of fantastic players out there that do that yeah and they disrupt b2c supermarket shopping or just generally you know e-commerce around food quite successfully yeah. they bring costs down they bring you know the source straight to you the whole idea of farm to table mm. that's exactly what they do we don't do that we're very much on the b2b side we're almost behind this operation and we're sort of working in a parallel dimension to these guys. I mean, mm. the B2C online players, they are disrupting a supermarket and they're saying, look, you don't need a brick and mortar building that's immense and has parking lots and so on mm. to actually get people what they need. You can just do it online. Now, you're right. A lot of other players started, you know, piggybacking on this trend and they didn't necessarily maintain the, the quality, the standards. Mm. I, I have heard this before and I am myself a big fan of, by the way, ordering uh, when it comes to my B2C shopping online mm-hmm. rather than supporting always, you know, as much as I do support local when it comes to needing to buy essentials that are coming maybe from afar that I can't find local to me, or perhaps, uh, you know, I know have to come from some supermarkets such as, you know, really big brands that at the end of the day you still need. Mm. Um, you know, there's moments where I will try to buy through those online middlemen, if you like, yeah, because there's many benefits to that. But there was a surge uh, in concepts that were suddenly, you know, realizing that there's monetization to be to be had during the pandemic. Yeah. And and yeah, it was it was, you know, it was a, it was a strange time. Now, in our case, what we saw is in our B2B, if you like, trade market uh, yeah. industry, what we saw is that a lot of the wholesalers, interestingly, were starting to actually sell to consumers also, mm-hmm. which I respect because it was also a way to actually save their business yeah. and also avoid any waste, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm really passionate about. And it's something that we should try to eliminate whenever possible. 
and that is only something that comes with owning the stock, right? In our case, what we knew was that we only represent stock. It's almost like on an on-demand basis. Mm. And so we did our very best to support, you know, like I said, through a COVID campaign, we actually worked with the NHS system for a while. We tried mm. to support a lot of the NHS staff through ordering, um, you know, on our platform. This is usually an account that we wouldn't be working with, yeah. uh, you know, the public sector per se, at least at that time. Mm -hmm. But obviously things change, circumstances change, and we wanted to be part of that. We wanted to help ease the pain and the pressure right. that was, you know, being felt through the long queues when people were going on waitress or, you know, yeah. ask online or, you know, simply going out there and there was shortages. And again, we we sort of funneled every possible brand we had to to you know to to our network, and it was quite efficient. At some point, we even allowed for households actually mm. to order, which comes back to the B2C discussion. That's that was just a very short adaptation. That was a way of us helping the community. But of course, you know, post-pandemic, that all ended. Mm -hmm. We're back on our mission. And our mission says we need to disrupt wholesale as we know it. And we need yeah. to enable brands to get out there with better terms, both for the buyers and the sellers. So how do we maintain quality? Well, that is a very interesting question because we have a whole operations team that actually deals in understanding the brands that we onboard, mm -hmm. the certifications that the brands carry, mm -hmm. obviously get to know the brands themselves, test the products ourselves, make sure that there is enough due diligence and understanding of where those brands have been selling, whether yeah. they're verified, whether they're obviously legitimate businesses. Mm -hmm. There's a very thorough uh, operational support, if you like, or QA, quality assessment, before a brand comes on board, but also throughout the brand you know, time with us. Yeah. We need to ensure that everything they provide is truthful, mm -hmm. that obviously they will abide to the fact that they're signing up to sell if someone yeah. orders through them. Mm -hmm. So yes, there's a lot of tight you know, control and, and, and processes around ensuring quality and ensuring more importantly that you know, people will, 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 will act the way they should. This is a trading environment. And we can only work with professional brands. So, of course, there's, you know, mechanisms in place to ensure that if someone, you know, for whatever reason, sometimes good reasons as well, meaning brands can sometimes run into complications around production or maybe uh, if they're working with a commodity that may take a hit during a hard winter and suddenly they're producing less. We need to ensure that that is reflected on the platform, that right. a buyer who's counting mm -hmm. and their livelihood is counting on buying a certain product will be made aware mm -hmm. that actually that brand they've been buying from suddenly is out of stock for a while yeah. and we will then need to find something else for them. So yes, there's a very hands-on approach. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, because you know I feel like we spoke so much about Shelf now, we haven't actually got to know that <laughs> much about you, is in my research, I saw that you were on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. <laughs> Yeah, that was um, that was a recent uh, set of news. So yeah, that's a good spot over there. Tell me more about that. As in, what was that process like? What comes off, you know, the back of being on thirty under thirty? You're <laughs> the first person I spoke to that's done such a thing. Yeah, I mean, look, it's 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 uh, it's a great honor to be on the list, and it certainly is a list that deals with individuals generally who have created usually something. Uh, it often revolves around startups but actually in the recent years i've seen it uh expand to you know sports uh expanding into music into arts mm. uh which at the end of the day are all you know equally entrepreneurial right when you're starting something from scratch and so the list has gotten really interesting it's not just tech it's not just you know high growth companies it's really a mixture of creativity and so how, how did it come about i mean uh, in, in in this very case i was nominated 
for that list. And then there's a series of uh, vetting and there's a series of, uh, you know, a judging panel getting to know you, asking you a lot of questions around yourself, your background, the company. Yeah. Uh, it often revolves around your creation usually, right? Yeah. Or, or the creation you're part of. Yeah, yeah. It can be, you know, it can be that you're part of something, not necessarily the founder of it. And, and then ultimately there's a short listing. So look, it is a really, you know, really amazing um, recognition. And one that also, I think, aims at connecting, you know, yeah. individuals with each other, making you aware of what's out there. I think it even helps with talent, talent knowing that, you know, these brands have gone through that publication and, and you know, I guess the curiosity can arise for them to want to know more. So it's really a networking effect and we welcome anything uh and you know of that nature yeah and it will bump you up in the the google search results whenever someone types your name in you'll definitely be first and they'll see that and they'll be like wow. i guess it will i mean forbes does have a very good uh optimization uh, effect on on search yeah so so sorry i, I had to kind of get that that one out because i was thinking to myself like yeah we haven't spoken anything <laughs> about you but with shelf now are you kind of a solo founder or do you have a co-founder no, no, not at all. I'm absolutely a co-founder. I have a lovely co-founder. Uh, his name is Sajid Ghani, yeah. uh, with whom I started Shelf Now a few years ago. Mm-hmm. We've been on this journey since day one together. We're um, very complementary co-founders. Mm-hmm. We work on different things within the company, but we really complete each other and each other's ability as well. Yeah. And so between myself and Sajid, we started you know, looking at the space of retail, analytics, data. That's something we haven't touched on, but our company is really focused on data, mm-hmm. data science specifically, yeah. and how that can help improve all those things we want to accomplish, such as reducing the cost of distribution, yeah. uh, bringing buyers and suppliers together in a more meaningful way. Maybe we can talk about that. Yeah, go for it. Tell us about data science. All right. So this is something we're really proud of and something that differentiates us to quite a few players out there because we think that it's not just about being an online player mm-hmm. that will you know, will help us achieve our goal, if you like. Mm-hmm. I mean, surely, you know, bringing distribution online and, and digitizing it, you know, is already a step forward, right? Mm-hmm. And moving away from the brick and mortar model, the reseller model, we talked about that. But taking it a further step from mm-hmm. there is where we see the data coming in. The yeah. data comes in and giving us an understanding of what is it that buyers need? Yeah. What's their profile? Especially when we're dealing with independence, everyone has different requirements, such as, for example, we spoke about it earlier, the storage requirements that yeah. someone has within their store, the products they're looking for, the budget that they have to allocate to this, the locality and whether that plays a role in their procurement. So do they care, you know, when it comes to buying from the country or like local to them or do they not? Sustainability is another one that's really big. A lot of our buyers care for, let's say, zero waste, mm-hmm. you know, brands, right? Yeah. Brands that come without packaging, for example. Um obviously, you know, goes without saying other lifestyle attributes go into this profiling as well. Yeah. So let's just say that there's a few tens of attributes that we have sort of set aside and understood yeah. and sort of given different weights and importance to right. that help us build up the understanding of this is a buyer that needs this, this and that. Yeah. And similarly, we've sort of analyzed and if you like done an anatomy of mm-hmm. what a brand's USP, unique selling points are, and what makes them unique? You know, why this crisps brand out of the tens that exist out there, especially in the UK, yeah. is unique because it is. They all are, yeah. right, to a certain extent. And again, those attributes 
such as again lifestyle features, such as whether they're a fair trade company, such as you know what sort of what what packaging comes with the brand. Is it sustainable? Is it not? Where do they produce? What certification do they have? Are they organic? Are they vegan? Are they none of the above? What's their price point? You know what ascribes to their you know USP when it comes to quality? Is there a specific twist around innovation? Mm. All those things are again to us incredibly important because it'll define how we position uh, or or, or I should say what we position in front of a buyer. In the incumbent's case, usually what happens, usually, is a catalog gets distributed and buyers have the option to just flick through the catalog, whether online or physical. It used to be physical to very recently, mainly. That's pages and pages of stock and they just had to, you know, decide on what they want, pick up the phone, order it. What we're saying is as much as a buyer is, you know, more than capable of understanding okay out of the 10 crisps that are out there yeah i feel like going for this one mm. we want to empower their decision making even further to actually show them that out of those 10 brands mm-hmm. you should definitely pick based on you know some of the obvious requirements like what has the best profit margin yeah. or what you know do you like the most in terms of branding mm-hmm. but maybe there's things that you can't necessarily analyze mm-hmm. on a human level or help prioritize or simply would take you too much time and that's where the data comes in right. and helps them understand don't look at all those 10. Just look at this one. We think this is the right one for you. Yeah. Try it out. And of course, they can break out of that recommendation. Yeah. But the idea is that with you know, taking on our recommendations, with interacting with this discovery, if you like, that we empower through data, we then get to understand the buyer even further. It's almost like saying in a way, you know, Netflix understands your uh, you know, watching habits, right? Uh, your movie watching habits. Mm-hmm. So what we are building eventually, Sam, is machine learning. Yeah. that will be funneled into different products. Mm-hmm. The first one is the discovery. Yeah. So how does a buyer discover brands? How do they decide on which one to buy for, uh, to, to go for, excuse yeah. me, and vice versa. The same applies to the producers because actually on our marketplace and unlike many others, yeah. the producers can also interact with the buyers. Mm-hmm. And that's also a, a, you know, a unique feature to shelf now, meaning it's not like on Amazon where you just go and you can buy whatever you need. In the contrast, actually, to to that, the sellers can approach the buyers Mm -hmm. with unique propositions. Because like I said, the whole point here is to actually open up this channel, create communication between the two of them, and can then tailor their deals for one another. So there's a real power in them owning the process of negotiation, just like they would if they were to meet directly, you know, out on the high street and, 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 you know, engage in trading. So... These things we didn't really touch on earlier. I'm happy you enabled me to talk about them. So coming back to my co-founder in the story, between myself and Sajid, we sort of came with different backgrounds. He came from retail analytics and, you know, years of consulting and and being sort of in the space of specifically retail, actually, within his consulting. He has previously founded a company very successfully as well around analytics for retail. Mm -hmm. And I came uh, very much from a marketplace and tech-enabled companies' background. Right. We spoke about my business development and operations background, but what we didn't speak so much about was what companies was that applied to. And yeah. it was in a range of companies from a marketplace, mm-hmm. home services marketplace, all the way to cybersecurity, which was a lot more deep tech, as they say in the space, yeah. really a lot more technical than, you know, uh, than, than businesses such as ours at this point in time, uh, which, of course, came with a lot of benefits in understanding the development that goes into 
you know, uh, the various products that we work with, yeah. but also in venture capital to a certain extent that I've been involved in as an associate where I was, you know, screening and, and sort of uh, deciding on, on the fundraising for a lot of these startups that we work with, again, yeah. in cybersecurity at the time. So between the two of us and someone uh, else as well, who was a tactical partner at the time, yeah. who came directly from the space of F&B, who had been working for many years in consulting, for F&B brands and who had actually helped a lot of companies get out there and had seen firsthand the problems, we sort of brought the marketplace, the retail and analytics and the food and beverage, you know, mindsets, if you like, together and backgrounds. And we started, you know, brainstorming on could we change, uh, you know, the way food gets distributed? Could we deliver some value in this space? And, and so that's, that's the, if you like, the start of it. Okay. And in the start, like, how did you fund your business? Because I know a lot of people that I've spoken to have bootstrapped, but there have been a fair amount of people that have fundraised as well. Because I'm imagining building all the tech and infrastructure for Shelf now was quite costly. So you're right. There's always, you know, a time in the beginning where you bootstrap for, you know, a period of time. And that's different for every, I think, co-founder and founder and, and startup out there. Mm. For some people, it's, uh, you know, a very brief time. For others, it's uh, maybe a little longer and it all really depends also on the incubation time of how quickly can you turn around a product that can start selling or at least, you know, start delivering some revenue. In our case, I have to say the bootstrapping period was essential mm. uh, until we could actually launch, uh, at, you know, the first version of Shelf Now, yeah. at which point we started, you know, raising funding. And right. ever since it's been, uh, it's been that way. So there's definitely been some, you know, co-founding bootstrapping, mm. you know, you have to, you have to believe in your product enough to be able to take that risk. Yeah. But again, you know, it's, it's, it's a very personal decision that will help you um, decide how long is that period going to last? Mm. Um, when do I feel ready uh, to, you know, seek out external investment? So yeah, hopefully that answers your question around this, but was it an expensive endeavor? I think that really depends on, how lean you are in your methodology as an entrepreneur, as a founder. And myself and Saji, my co-founder, were certainly extremely lean in the way we uh, approach the development. You know, in the industry, you know, you may have heard of agile development and sort of building uh, in, in a principle that, yeah. you know, tries to minimize the waste of capital and really focus around mm. the priorities of what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. A lot of that was deployed in our case, the way we put together a team the way we structured it, the way we worked together. We were missing a lot of expertise within the company, yeah. obviously. And, you know, at first you have to wear all those hats, a lot of which you're far from an expert, mm. but you still have to wear them. And so, you know, a lot of the product development in the early days had to be done by myself. My co-founder were technical enough. We have enough product experience to, have, you know, handle that in the earlier mm. days. So let's just say that it doesn't need to be yeah. actually an expensive endeavor. If you're hands-on, if you as a founder don't just, outsource it somewhere or expect someone else to do it if you're hands-on if you work on it yourself yeah you know and and there's ways obviously for this to happen right you're going to need help you're going to need to recruit you know in some shape or form someone to help you a team maybe a person but the minute you're heavily invested in this and if you deploy the right principles around approaching it around the money you're spending on something around the validation that you need before you start spending more then it doesn't need to be too expensive. Yeah. And, you know, going out and building your business and then going out and hiring people to work in, you know, what is essentially like your baby. 
how do you go about the hiring process? I'm sure you're probably not, you know, directly involved with the hiring process at the moment, but in the beginning, you very much were. So what kind of people were you looking for and how did you maintain You actually, you'll be surprised to hear that actually I'm I'm still very heavily involved oh. with the hiring process okay. um, and, and I enjoy being uh, involved. Of course, you're right. Many others are as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's people that have a better, you know, uh, assessment uh, than I do, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to specific roles within the company. And so a lot of it will pass through them. Mm -hmm. um, but I do enjoy still being involved because I think, you know, especially in a company that hasn't yet reached, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of people, I think it's important for people to really get to know everyone in the company yeah. to the point bandwidth allows it, right? Of course. And so, you know, as co-founders, we've always enjoyed getting to know anyone who will come and work with us yeah. and for them to get to know who they'd be working with because mm. that's important that's essential and as a team we work very closely together you know we do like to call ourselves a family the values the culture that we have is really personal yeah. it's not you know it's not um in any way faceless and so in that sense we like to to keep things you know uh, quite um close when it comes to hiring when it comes to recruiting but of course in the early days it was a lot more reliant on uh yeah on on myself for example or my co-founder at times so how did we approach it i mean a lot of it had to do with you know leveraging our own network trying to uh find individuals out there who may be a good fit and then really discussing meeting and uh, you know understanding whether we're you know going to be able to collaborate Further down the line, with you know the budget increasing, obviously other options became available. But I still I still do believe firmly, actually, that the right talent has to be attracted to you in a very organic way. Yeah, that's not necessarily relying on advertising and you know standard templates just being you know thrown out in every single direction, but rather in something that is a little bit more worked on, such as you know development of networks with people that know the industry people that can bring you in touch with others so we handpick the people that work with us and we like to think they handpick us also yeah. so it is a process that sometimes can take a while mm. and in other cases can happen quite fast but we enjoy it at the end of the day and it's critical yeah and so philip you have such a good kind of business brain on you and you you've been working hard at shelf now and you've got to a point now where things are going good. And, you know, you started off in a mm -hmm. point where there was you know, really nothing going on. So to that person who's getting started today or that person who's thinking about starting whatever idea they have, what kind of advice would you give them? One of the things I think that matters quite a bit in the early days is for people to, you know, really entertain whatever idea they have in their mind. And by entertain, I mean to really, you know, push themselves a little bit outside their comfort zone and to start discussing it, to start, you know, well, voicing it really so that they can actually understand before anyone can tell them whether this is something worth pursuing. Mm. So you shouldn't be shy to, you know, start discussing it with people that may even become your partner one day or your co-founder or an employee or an investor even, or simply just someone who can listen to you. So start discussing it, start hearing your own self talking about this idea you have. And, you know, it may sound like a cliche, but don't be worried about, you know, people snatching that idea away from you or, or you know, people replicating it because that is very far away from actually being able to happen. That's one thing I would recommend. 
there's no need to protect something in the very early days. Instead, you need to actually get out there and you really need to see whether it would actually work, whether people are agreeing and not necessarily people that like to please you, but people that actually may not even know you. So in our case, in the early days, we really went out there without almost anything other than, you know, maybe some mock-ups or some thoughts, some scribbles. And we spoke to tons and tons of people, mm-hmm. producers, buyers, just general, uh, you know, people in the industry. Mm-hmm. And without that, we would have never gone ahead in developing the company because we, it's very easy to develop something that's a nice to have. It's very hard to, you know, go for something that's a must have. And obviously that you only know further down the line, but it's important to validate all those hypotheses mm-hmm. that at the end of the day you have. They're only hypotheses in the early days. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I think is quite important is, and I'd highly recommend this to anyone, and even from our venture days, I, I remember that uh, is a learning that I took from those days. You want to share the burden with at least one other person. Right. I'm a big believer in having a co-founder, at least one. You can mm-hmm. have multiple. Um, in my case, uh, you know, I, I believe that two to three is a very healthy you know, dynamic because first it is quite the burden. Mm. That's, uh, that's maybe even an understatement sometimes. The beautiful burden, but still a burden that is very important to be able to share. Secondly, you can't be good at everything mm-hmm. and you certainly aren't. So ideally you want to find someone who's complimenting you, someone who understands you and someone who will challenge you. And that is also really, really important. So do seek out a co-founder, seek out a partner and share and be open about, you know, letting that other person in on your idea. Because at the end of the day, it can only get better if, of course, that is the right person for you. And that's where a lot of people get it wrong. Sometimes they rush into speaking to a friend or they force it even. Mm. Sadly, it can't be forced. Maybe it's someone from work. Maybe it's someone you haven't met yet and you'll meet further down the line. Maybe it's someone you've always known. But it is important to make sure that the co-founder you pick is someone you have good chemistry with. Ideally, there's a healthy, you know, and mutual understanding of each other without any sort of necessarily strong biases. And thirdly, that the skills complement each other. I've seen teams where the co-founders were amazing, but they were both good at the same thing. And that's not always, in my opinion, the best dynamic. A few words from Philip. For anyone listening out there who uh, may be... uh, business owner in food, uh, whether a buyer or a brand, we'd be more than happy to talk to them if they feel like ShelfMap could be something that can help them or perhaps something that sounds interesting enough to want to explore more, to want to get to know more about. So do let us know. Uh, do go onto our website, shelfnow.co.uk and reach out. We can have a chat. We can get to know you. We can understand whether we could be of help. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.